You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ukraine warns that Russia is preparing a coordinated attack against Ukrainian financial and energy infrastructure. China appears to be stepping up surveillance of the Tibetan diaspora. Cisco's Talos unit has a free decryptor for Thanatos ransomware. Facebook's self-audit of data usage proves both more difficult and more skeleton-rattling than hoped. Norwegian consumer watchdogs find that Facebook and Google nudge users away from privacy. And an altcoin sting against drug dealers. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, June 28, 2018. The head of Ukraine's National Cyber Police has warned that Russian operators are staging malware in Ukrainian enterprises, presumably for a coordinated campaign at some later date. Ukrainian authorities have told Reuters and others that they've detected evidence that battle space preparation is in progress against financial institutions and energy infrastructure. The operation, as it's understood so far, has proceeded in the following familiar stages. First, compromise of legitimate Ukrainian government email accounts. Second, phishing campaigns mounted against infrastructure targets using those compromised accounts. Third, installation of malicious payloads carried by the emails. The malware is believed to have established backdoors in banking and energy enterprises, where it will presumably be held in reserve until the attackers decide to execute. The threat, should it materialize, is unlikely to be confined to Ukraine. NotPetya began with attacks on Ukrainian targets in June of last year and quickly spread worldwide. A number of Western companies were hit hard. FedEx, affected to a considerable extent through a recently acquired European subsidiary, recently pegged the costs of NotPetya at roughly $400 million. Today is Ukraine's Constitution Day, often mentioned as attractive to attackers wishing to draw maximal attention to their political point. Nothing, however, has been reported so far today. August 24th, the country's Independence Day, is another date mentioned for potential attack timing. Russian authorities have issued routine denials of involvement in cyber attacks on Ukrainian targets. To be sure, the Ukrainian government is disposed for many reasons to think the worst of Russia and her intentions, But the Ukrainian government is by no means alone in this respect. Much of the rest of the world regards Ukraine as a kind of proving ground for Russian cyber-attack tools. The Russian record of hitting portions of the Ukrainian power grid to induce electrical outages is particularly worrisome, especially given the interest Russian operators have shown in other countries' power grids. So, as we said, Moscow says they didn't do nothing, and Ukraine says, well, you're about to. If nothing pops today, put a circle on your calendar around August 24th. 
But when you do so, remember that public holidays are nothing more than convenient indicators. More to the point, keep an eye out for phishing. Open source software is a valuable resource for software developers and security professionals. And the recent purchase of GitHub by Microsoft raised a few eyebrows and brought attention to the open source community. Jaime Blasco is chief scientist at Alien Vault, and he offers his perspective on open source software for security. I think it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, on one hand, you need to be careful with you know which tools you are using, especially if they are open source, and whether or not uh, those tools are properly you know secure, uh, audited, and you know people are are putting enough resources into securing and auditing uh, uh, the source code. When it comes to you know the most popular open source projects, that's usually not an issue, and and actually it's an advantage. You know that the source code is publicly available because you have all these developers, all these security researchers looking at the code and you know submitting bugs and and improvements whenever they find them. Now, when it when it comes to using open source tools, do you find are there some misperceptions out there? Do some people resist using them, uh, maybe for the wrong reasons? I think it used to be an issue. I don't see this being an issue anymore, and and I think. You know, like last week or a couple of weeks ago when Microsoft bought GitHub, I think that was the confirmation that, you know, open source is the future. And we are seeing these, uh, you know, companies such as Microsoft and 10, 15 years ago, it was unbelievable that they will contribute to open source communities. They're actually one of the biggest contributors right now to some of the biggest uh, open source projects out there. So I think people are not as scared of these tools anymore. They have become an instrumental part of any organization nowadays. Can you describe to us, I mean, the, the security advantages? You touched on it earlier about having so many eyes on the code. Can you describe to us so why? what's the advantage there? So, yeah, besides having many people being able to audit and find vulnerabilities in, in those tools, the, the other advantage is also how fast, you know, patches can be created and released. Uh, compared to some traditional, you know, enterprise vendors, like sometimes you will have to wait weeks or months until your vendor will make patches available. With open source tools, if there is a high critical vulnerability, many times you have many people creating patches uh, for those vulnerabilities even before the official patch is available. So you have an option to, you know, make that piece of software more secure even before, you know, you can use the official packaging system or whatever method to patch your systems you are using. I think cybersecurity is actually one of the, the biggest examples in terms of using open source tools. Many times enterprises, they have this dilemma where, you know, it's buy versus uh, build. And, you know, I think open source is helping sometimes in terms of, you know, filling those gaps where you don't have to spend millions of dollars anymore in one specific tool, but you can go uh, to the open source community and find something that can satisfy your needs. And I think, you know, in cybersecurity, it has been one of the the first industries to adopt like open source tools in a a broader context. Like, you know, I, I remember... 10 years ago, you will have projects such as uh, Snort and OSIM and Suricata, OpenBus, even Nisus before it, it became proprietary. But, you know, there, there were many, many tools that people were actively using on an enterprise context. 
So what are your recommendations for people who want to start using open source tools, uh, want, want to integrate them into uh, how they approach security? I would recommend, you know, go talk to your peers and, you know, talk to other companies that are in a similar situation that maybe they have already, you know, implemented some of these tools. Nowadays, there are forums, even GitHub or, you know, Slack channels where you can go and talk to, to other users and try to get, you know, a perspective of, you know, how difficult the implementation is going to be and, and if there is any, you know, tricks and things you can use before you decide to implement that in terms or even replace some of the enterprise tools that, that you may have. That's Jaime Blasco from Alien Vault. Cyber espionage campaigns, apparently staged by and from China, have been targeting Tibetans resident in India. The campaign seems connected with long-standing Chinese domestic surveillance of ethnic populations whose loyalty and adherence to Beijing have been suspect. Bravo Talos, Cisco's research unit, has released a free decryptor for Thanatos ransomware. Thanatos gained itself a degree of notice by its acceptance of ransom payments in a range of cryptocurrencies, and not just in the extortionist's favorite, Bitcoin. The crooks will take payment in Bitcoin Cash, Zcash, Ethereum, and a few others as well. To add insult to injury, the Thanatos masters have shown themselves to be either incapable of, or more probably just not interested in, actually decrypting their victims' files upon payment of ransom. But Cisco's Talos Group has exploited what they call weaknesses in the design of the file encryption methodology to build their own decryptor, which they say can recover a decryption key in 14 minutes or less. The Norwegian Consumer Council, sounding a bit like a Freakonomics type interested in getting the right kind of nudges out there, complain that Facebook, and for that matter Google, are nudging toward all the wrong places, privacy-wise. The NCC says their services exhibit dark patterns, default anti-privacy settings, confusing layouts, the illusion of choice, and various design choices that offer positioning, visual cues, and so forth, tending to push people into more self-revelation than is probably good for them. As they put it in their study, quote, Facebook and Google have privacy-intrusive defaults, where users who want the privacy-friendly option have to go through a significantly longer process. They even obscure some of these settings so that the user cannot know that the more privacy-intrusive option was pre-selected. So the moral for users would appear to be the usual one. Take the trouble to be an informed consumer, especially when you're consuming a free service offered by a company that realizes a significant fraction of its revenue from marketing. Finally, a multi-agency law enforcement operation in the U.S. has taken down a number of alleged dark web contraband dealers, for the most part drug traffickers. The action involved the Department of Justice, Homeland Security Investigations, the U.S. Secret Service, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, and the Drug Enforcement Administration. Authorities are tight-lipped about details, but apparently government agents posed as cryptocurrency money launderers to roll up the suspects. Turning cryptocurrencies into more conventional and more easily negotiable government fiat money is a bottleneck for dark web black marketeers. Agents of Immigration and Custom Enforcement's Homeland Security Investigations posed in the dark web as brokers willing and able to do just that, and many drug dealers were ensnared. If you're trying to launder money or convert altcoins to euros, dollars, shekels, or pazuzas, well, think twice. 
Those helpful bankers may not be what they appear to be. It's a sad day when you can't trust the people you meet through a tornado. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to welcome to the show Mike Benjamin. He's the Senior Director of Threat Research at CenturyLink. Mike, uh, welcome to the show. Um, you know, I have certainly heard of malware, and I've certainly heard of spam, uh, but you brought something to my attention called mal-spam. Is this the best of both worlds? Is this the worst of both worlds? Fill us in. What are we talking about here? Well, I'd say it's uh, the best and the worst, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. So, you know, mal-spam is not a new topic or concept, but... We have found as we've been working on the topic lately that when we say we're working on spam to the broader security community, we actually get a lot of folks just assuming we're we're filtering pharmaceutical ads or dating ads. And mm. what we're really trying to look at is the malicious email people are getting. And so we call, you know, describe it as mouse spam and we uh, would describe it ultimately as email you're going to get that aims to do something malicious. Now, in some cases, dating spam is mouse spam because ultimately they want to steal your credit card number at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And in other cases, pump and dump scams are, are pumped through these things with, again, trying to ultimately steal money from people. But at its core, we're looking for the malware delivery. And so mouse spam is one of the primary vehicles of infection these days. We saw a couple of years ago the exploit kit 
being popular with it, with criminal actors. And there were enough browser exploits, enough Java bugs, enough flash bugs, that that was a great delivery mechanism for them. They could get you to click on a URL. They could inject malice into advertising and ultimately infect people through that method. Fast forward a few years, a lot of browsers have cleaned up their problems. A lot of people have patched. There's uh, less volume of bugs coming out. And we put ourselves back into the position where opening a file in an email uh, is a really effective way to infect someone. And so the the old tried and true zip file, the file that is not what it claims to be, it claims to be a text file, it's really an executable, things like that are of course popular. But we've also seen the macro still be a popular way to infect people. So an office document with macros that drop some sort of lightweight dropper into the operating system and then download the final payload. And so that dropper is relatively light and small. It's not a full binary executable. And then whatever it is that their final outcome that they're looking to achieve is downloaded into the machine. Now, in terms of the distribution of these things and tracking these these botnets, what are you seeing? The criminal space around mouse spam is reasonably sophisticated. If you think back to the spam problems that arose in the late 90s and then became really rampant in the early 2000s, they were forced to evolve. And so the security world, the internet world for that matter, did a relatively good job hunting down and shutting down spammers in that era. People were successfully prosecuted in courts, laws were passed, and those are things that helps the world mature around how to deal with spam. And so, as you might expect, the successful criminal actors that remain, they've evolved since then. And so you see sort of a marketplace around what they're doing. The folks who are running the spam botnets are very rarely, at least at any size and scale, the folks who are actually trying to infect you. They are being hired by the people who are trying to infect you. And the the folks who are after bank account information or or installing crypto miners they're paying the botnet operators for successful installs or volume of delivery or whatever the mechanism is. So it's very interesting to watch. And as such, what you see from the botnets is a similar level of sophistication. They're not a single command and control in a single place that's easy to remove and take down. They've evolved. They've seen law enforcement take their botnets in the past. And so now, of course, they evolved to the domain generation algorithm or DGA where an algorithm tells it what the next DNS host name to resolve is. That's one of the more simple items that they've implemented. But there's a lot of redundancy, a lot of levels to the command and control. Uh, In many cases, we see peer-to-peer being used in conjunction with it. And in almost all cases, the larger and more successful mousebound botnets are in a position where they're using three or four of these types of techniques in order to stay up and avoid being broken by whether it be law enforcement or the security community. Hmm. All right, Mike Benjamin, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.